Uh, we're going to continue our study of Matthew, so I would ask you to please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9 today. We're in Matthew chapter 9, verse 9. And while you're finding that, I want to get you thinking about something. If Jesus were here today ministering, where do you think he would be ministering? What, what would he be doing? Throughout the week, where would he be? Who would he be hanging out with? The reason I ask that is because our text today may, may surprise you, and it certainly surprised the people of Jesus' day, but it's going to reveal to us the heart of Jesus, and it points us to the, the mission of Jesus. We're going to actually see Jesus make kind of like a mission statement. He does that at different times in the, in the Gospels, right? The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. I always do what is pleasing to the Father. He'll say things like that. Well, he's going to make one of those statements today that will actually reveal a, a large component of his mission, why he left heaven and came to earth. And then we're, as we continue through the passage, we'll also, we want to consider the radical changes that Jesus brought, the, the fact that he did come, what, what the results of that were, because that affects us now today as well. And so I want us to read this portion of God's word here in Matthew 9, and I would ask you to please stand for the reading of God's word. I'll be reading from Matthew 9, verse 9, all the way through verse 17. Matthew 9, 9. Let's hear the word of God together now. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Then the disciples of John John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wine skins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed." But new wine is put into fresh wine skins, and so both are preserved. Thanks be to God for his word. Please be seated. The title of the message is The Shocking Yet Beautiful Mission of Jesus. The Shocking Yet Beautiful Mission of Jesus. In in our passage this morning, we'll see the beauty of Christ's ministry, the beauty of his mission, why he came. But as we do that, we're going to see that many people were surprised and even shocked um, at at how Jesus was conducting himself. His ministry and his mission are not what most people expected. 
And it's important for us to understand this, right? It's important for us to understand the mission of Jesus. We need to know why he came, for one, so we can praise him for it and then embrace it, but also so that we can follow him in that mission, right? And follow him in what he calls us to do. Obviously, part of Christ's mission was unique. Only Jesus could die on the cross. Only he could lay down his life as an atoning sacrifice for sin. But as disciples of Christ, as followers of Jesus, we are called to learn from him and become like him. And so we are called in many ways to follow him on his mission of discipleship. All right, that's why we often say around here, we are disciples making disciples. (laughs) We're at the same time followers of Christ, but yet we're also called to be, as God enables us to be making other followers of Christ through the word, through the spirit of God. So this morning, I want to make two points about Christ's mission, or you could call it his ministry. All right, so I'll just go ahead and give you point number one. We're going to see that in this first section, verses 9 through 13. And it's simply this. Jesus came to call sinners to repentance. Jesus came to call sinners to repentance. We begin in verse 9 with the account of Jesus calling Matthew to become a disciple. If you read in Mark and Luke's account, uh, they're going to describe this event as well, but they, they'll use Matthew's other name, Levi. All right, so don't let that confuse you. Levi and Matthew are the same guy. All right, so here we're going to see that Matthew became one of the 12, one of the 12 disciples and eventually apostles, right? And we know the Spirit then enabled Matthew to write a portion of God's Word, the very book that we're studying now, right? The Gospel of Matthew. So I think that's kind of cool. Here in verse 9, we're going to have Matthew sharing his own testimony, his own story of how, how he came to Christ. It's only one verse, but think about how Matthew must have felt as he wrote this, right? And many years later and reflected back on the love and the grace of Jesus that sought him and transformed his life. Look with me at verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. So Matthew was a tax collector, right? He was sitting at the tax booth. And to the Jews of Jesus' day, this is already shocking, right? If they would have witnessed this, they would have seen Jesus go up to this this tax collector and say, follow me. They're like, that's not, rabbis don't do that, right? I mean, for one, usually people ask rabbis if they could follow him. but, But specifically, why would a rabbi be going up to a tax collector, I mean, that was scandalous in the Jews' eyes. They hated tax collectors for several reasons. For one, they viewed them as as traitors, right? Because the tax collectors are Jews, but they're the ones who are working for for the Roman occupiers, right? Rome's in charge. Rome had conquered Israel. And so a Jew was was like viewed as a, a, a Jewish tax collector, was viewed as a traitor, that he would be working and collecting taxes for the the occupying Romans. Secondly, tax collectors were despised because they were corrupt. They were extortionists, right? I mean, they, yeah, they had a set amount they had to collect for Rome, but then they would, the way they made money and the way they lined their pockets was just by charging more and more and more to the people. They, they took advantage of people. They stole from them, basically. They mistreated just to, 
mistreated others just to pad their own wallets. They mercilessly extorted money from the Jews there. So think this is Matthew who's made a lot of enemies right there in Capernaum. Because no doubt he, had, he, had, uh, he lived in wealth while ca- causing others around him to suffer. Finally, the Jews despised, despised tax collectors because they were ceremonially unclean. Again, they're always doing business with the Romans, right? They're, they're collecting the taxes. They're around the Romans doing that. Well, the Jews you know, viewed the Gentiles like the Romans as unclean. They wouldn't conduct business with them. They heard Matthew was doing that all the time. So all that to say, tax collectors were some of the most hated people among the Jews. Um, we know from, at that time, tax collectors were not allowed in the synagogues. They were not allowed to be a, a witness um, you know, at a trial. They were not allowed to serve in, in various ways. They were ostracized. The touch of a tax collector rendered a house unclean. Jewish literature from that time period lumped tax collectors together with thieves and murderers. So, I mean, this is a big deal that Jesus is going up to, you know, it's kind of like we, when we hear about the demoniacs or we hear about a leper or we hear about a woman caught in adultery, we think, oh, wow, look at Jesus. That's really, you know, that's really something that he's going to ministering them. Well, Matthew's just as big a deal. And here once again, we see just as we saw when Jesus touched the leper, we, once again now with Jesus, he's coming in contact with someone who was viewed as unclean. But yet here Jesus is going up to this corrupt, unclean traitor and saying, follow me. In verse 9, Matthew, it gives Matthew's response, and he rose and followed him. Short and sweet, right? But what, what a powerful change that, that illustrated Matthew left his tax booth to follow Jesus. I mean, this would be shocking to the Jews. Of all the people, Matthew was probably one of the most unlikely to become one of Christ's disciples. But again, it highlights the greatness of God's sovereign grace. God's grace had got a hold of Matthew's heart. And so Matthew left the tax booth, left his life of sin and corruption, and followed Jesus. Obviously, Matthew is an example then of what it means to become a Christian, right? He's an example of what God does in each of us, right? We, we, we hear Christ's call to leave our life of sin. We hear the, the Savior calling us to follow him. By God's grace and by faith then, we turn from living for ourselves and we turn to follow Christ. We turn to live for Christ. That's what it means to be a Christian, Right? We've been considering that through our study of the Gospel of Matthew. And we see right away that Matthew's life has been transformed. Not only did he leave the tax booth, but now as we come to the next verse, verse 10, it's going to show Jesus dining with other tax collectors and sinners. And if you go look at the other Gospel accounts, we, we realize that this is actually Matthew's house. So it's like Matthew has orchestrated this gathering, right? It's, he's, he's thrown this big dinner party, inviting all of his old tax collector uh, friends and, and this other group that the Pharisees will call sinners. And he wants them to meet Jesus. His life has been changed by Jesus, and now he wants them to, to get to know the Savior. Verse 10, and as Jesus reclined at table in the house, right, so Jesus is there. He's having dinner with, the, with these people. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were, were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. But now look at the reaction. Verse 11, and when the Pharisees saw this, 
They said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? I mean, just hear the disdain in their voice, right? Remember, the Pharisees are the religious leaders of the day, and they can't believe that Jesus, this this prominent rabbi, that he would have dinner with tax collectors, that he would go into the house of a tax collector, that he would have table fellowship with other tax collectors and sinners. I mean, I've already explained how despised the tax collectors were, right? But sinners, what, what is that about? Well, that described a group of, actually, it, was, it could often be just a group of common people, but they were irreligious people. These were people who showed no interest in the traditions of the scribes and the Pharisees. They didn't try to keep themselves ceremonially clean. They didn't, they didn't tithe. They didn't jump through all the religious hoops that the Pharisees had, had laid out for the people to follow. And so the, the Pharisees, they designated people like that as sinners. And no doubt they were sinners. And, and, and that term can also include people like prostitutes and thieves and renegades. It, it's kind of an all-inclusive term just to describe everybody who's, who, the, who's of disrepute, right? The, the trash of society. And so you put tax collectors and sinners together at Matthew's party, and in the Jews' eyes, you literally had the scum of the earth. So, I mean, this is, this is scandalous to them that Jesus would be there. Here's Jesus, here's his disciples, all under the same roof, enjoying a meal together. And one more thing you need to understand about that is, um, and and this isn't hard for us to understand, but table fellowship there in Israel was a big, big deal. I mean, to have dinner with somebody, especially at their house, right? I mean, that was was like, um, it meant you were close friends with them. I mean, that was, there there was a level of intimacy there, and there was a level of intimate association and it was often viewed as even an, kind of an endorsement of each other's person and, and lifestyle. And so the Pharisees, again, can't understand how, this, how Jesus, this rabbi, could do such a thing. And so I think it's interesting to notice they don't confront Jesus directly. They, they talk to his disciples. Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Well, in verse 12, Jesus hears of their complaint. He responds... Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. See what Jesus is doing in that response? He's stating his mission. He's explaining why he left the glory of heaven, why he came to earth and and became a man, why he's living among them. He came on this mission to call sinners to repentance. Jesus came on a rescue mission, right? We know the Bible explains that sin has, had left mankind, all of us by nature, separated from God, lost, headed for an eternity in hell. But Jesus, God in his grace and love, sent Jesus to come and rescue sinners, to rescue them from eternity in hell, to to bring them back to God, to reconcile them back to their creator. And so that's why Jesus had come. He'd come to make peace between sinners and a holy God by paying for their sins and giving them the righteousness that God requires. He'd come to reconcile them back to God by pointing them to himself, who would then die on the cross in their place, thereby paying for their sins. 
so that through faith they could be made right with God. He'd come to show sinners that he alone could make peace between them and God, that he alone could give them the righteousness that God requires, that he alone could pay for all their sins and forgive all their sins. And so you see what he's explaining. He's like, I, guys, I must be around sinners because that's the only way that they can be saved. The only way they can be saved is to be introduced to Jesus. And the reason I gave, gave the heading I did to this section is in Luke's account of this event, he, Jesus says, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Okay? So understand what Jesus is doing here. He's not condoning their sin. He's not saying to the tax collectors, hey, it's okay that you extort money from people and take advantage. Just keep on doing it. He's not saying to the, to the prostitutes, hey, just keep on in your lifestyle. No. He, he's, by being with them, he's revealing their sin, but he's pointing them to the solution to their sin. He's calling them to repent, to turn from that life of sin and to turn to Christ. Jesus met sinners where they were. He showed them love and compassion, and he exhorted them to leave their life of sin and follow him. Okay? Think of um, what, what's recorded for us in John 8, uh, the woman caught in adultery. Remember, and the people are ready to stone her, and, and, and you know, Jesus basically rebukes them, and they leave, and, and he's, he interacts with the woman then, and he says, neither do I condemn you, but you go and sin no more, right? He showed her mercy. He showed her love and compassion, but he called her to leave her life of sin, to see her need for a Savior, and to follow Jesus as Lord. So that's what Jesus is doing here. I mean, this is, this is the gospel at work. This, you know, here we've got Matthew that's following Jesus. Now others are being introduced to Jesus. I mean, this is great. The, the Pharisees, the people of God, should be rejoicing at what's happening here. They, they should be happy that, that tax collectors and sinners are, are repenting. They're coming to Jesus. They're admitting that they're sinners who need God's forgiveness. And, and not all of them, I'm sure, but, but some are, are turning from their sins and following Jesus. They're, they're following God's promised king. So this should have been a time of rejoicing. But yet the Pharisees, they're, they're offended. They're, they're rebuking Jesus. But Jesus is explaining to them, I eat with tax collectors and sinners because I'm the Savior. Sinners need to be brought to the Savior. The sick need a doctor. Of course, I'm sure many of you probably are catching the, the tragic irony in all this, aren't you? The Pharisees were just as sick. <laughs> the Pharisees were just as sick as the tax collectors and the sinners. Right? They were just as in need of a Savior. They were just as in need of being rescued from their sins. Yeah, sure, maybe they looked better, more holy on the outside than, than the group that Jesus was eating with. But clearly on the inside, they, their, their hearts were full of greed and lust and pride, self-righteousness. And so Jesus' response to the Pharisees not only explained his own mission, but it really should have been like a wake-up call to them, right? It should have been a call for them to examine their own lives. And Matthew does something in his account that, that Mark and Luke don't. For, for Matthew's Jewish readers, his Jewish audience, 
he records how Jesus quoted from the Old Testament book of Hosea. Did you notice that there in verse 13? Jesus quotes, it's actually a quote from Hosea 6.3, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Well, the Pharisees should have known that verse, right? They should have known that passage. should have been a wake-up call because Hosea, in Hosea 6, God was telling the religious leaders through his prophet Hosea that, yes, although you're continuing in the outward forms of, of temple worship, that you've lost the heart of true worship. That's, that's what Hosea was telling the people of the, of the day. That they had lost sight how, of who God is and what he had done and what he was doing. They'd forgotten how... They claimed to serve God, but yet they'd forgotten how God had rescued them, how he'd shown compassion to them by by rescuing them from slavery in Egypt, how he had graciously entered into this covenant with them at Mount Sinai, the Mosaic covenant, and then through that uh, covenant, how God had revealed himself to them, revealed his laws and and provided a system of sacrifice through which they could be cleansed from their sins and and worship him. They had forgotten how God had, had lovingly cared for them and provided for them and made amazing promises promises to them, most of all, of course, the promise of sending the ultimate Savior, of sending the Messiah, the promised King. And so God had shown himself to be a gracious God who calls sinners into a relationship with him. And Jesus is quoting that verse because now Jesus is is demonstrating the same heart. He's demonstrating the same heart that, that God has and that the prophet Hosea was pointing out that God has. Jesus is saying, I have the same heart. I have the same kind of compassionate Gracious heart that is calling sinners to repentance. And so by quoting this, Jesus is not only telling the Pharisees, hey guys, back off, you know, I'm, I'm doing what I'm called to do. And man, I wish you guys could be a little nicer. Yes, he is saying that. But he's, he's also saying, hey, you know what? You guys are in the same boat as those apostate religious leaders back in Hosea's day. You guys are just like those religious leaders back then who were going through the outward motions, but who didn't truly even belong to the people of God. Wow. Right? That's a pretty big rebuke if they had ears to hear it, if, if God was helping them connect the dots there. Jesus is saying, you guys, are, it's just an outward show for you. You don't have a true heart. You're not, you're not demonstrating that you've even been changed by God. You're not demonstrating that you know the forgiveness of of your sins. You're not demonstrating that you know the love of God because you're not showing any love for other sinners. Right? So this is important. It's like if Jesus is, again, implying with this, if you guys were true believers, if God had really changed your heart, then you too would be compassionate like God. You would have God's heart for sinners. You would be like God who loves to show mercy and, and to rescue those who are lost. But instead, your cold, judgmental attitude demonstrates that you don't really know God. That you've never truly experienced God's forgiveness. So Jesus is telling them, he did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus did not, and what, you know, you say, well, what does that mean, right? Because the Bible says there's none righteous, and that's true. But it's saying Jesus did not come for those who already think they're righteous. No, he came for those who recognize their need. Remember in the Sermon on the Mount? Who are poor in spirit. Who recognize that they're bankrupt. That they have nothing to offer God. That, that by nature they, they um, are separated from God. That they have a debt they can never repay. And that describes all people apart from Christ. 
We all have that debt, but sadly not, not everyone recognizes it. The Bible says there are none righteous, no, not one. No one is able to measure up to God's holy standard of perfection. So we all need our sins forgiven. We all need the righteousness of God given to us. And so again, the Pharisees were just as needy as the tax collectors and the sinners, but tragically they didn't recognize it. And that's what's so sad about this, right? They were lost and didn't know it. They were desperately sick. Remember Jesus saying, hey, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, it's, it's the sick. Well, here these guys are desperately sick, but they don't realize it. The doc- and the doctor who could heal them, the doctor who could heal the disease of their soul was standing right before them. But rather than come to him in faith and repentance, they're, they're staying away in unbelief and in having a critical spirit, right? And, and again, we're going to see this opposition continue, and unfortunately, and increase. But it did make me think, I wonder if, if there would be anybody like that in this room who are kind of like the Pharisees. You think you're right with God. You, you would say, yeah, I'm not perfect, but I, I mean, nobody's perfect, right? But, you know, I'm pretty good. You're, you're kind of trusting in your own moral chops, as they say. And, and you're, if you were honest with yourself, you're, you're pretty quick to look down on others. This, this passage should be a warning. It should be a, a wake-up call, like I said, as it should have been for the Pharisees, to realize, no, I too am a sinner who needs a Savior. I too fall short of the glory of God. That I cannot... God is a holy God. He is, he is pure light in Him. There is no darkness at all. That I can't come into His presence with any sin. And I know I'm a sinner. God requires per- perfect obedience both on the outside and the inside. And so my only hope of being saved is Jesus Christ. And so I pray there won't be any here today who are trusting in their own righteousness. That all of us will recognize that Apart from Christ, we are sick and we need a Savior. We are sinners. And then that we'll rejoice in the good news that Jesus is that Savior. That he comes and and rescues us from our sin. So we see this incredibly gracious mission of Jesus. That he came to save, to to heal, if you want to use his metaphor. To rescue those who, who recognize their need, who admit their need. And, and will forsake their sin and turn to him. Okay, That's the gospel, and that's his gracious mission. And so again, as followers of Christ, those of us who, whom God has saved, I mean, that should, be, that should be just like filling our hearts with joy, right? Like, wow. <laughs> again, God sought me. He came and saved me. And, and so we're, our hearts should be full of thankfulness and, and praise for him. But like I said at the beginning, it's also reminding us of our mission, right? That there's other sinners out there who need a Savior. And, and we too need to take Jesus to them. Right? There are sick and hurting people all around us who are separated from God and are headed for an eternity in hell. 
And, and again, this was a reminder, this was a conviction to me of just how Jesus engages sinners. Right? We know elsewhere he's, he's called a friend of sinners. Jesus did not isolate himself. He ate with tax collectors and sinners. And again, as, even as Christians, sometimes we can get kind of isolated, right? I mean, it, you know, we are called out of darkness and into his marvelous light. We're called to be the people of God, and we rejoice in, in doing that together. But may we be the, also the salt and light of the world. And may our light shine as we follow Christ. And, and, and again, as we daydream about him and, and, and as our hearts are full of, of joy and praise for him, it'll just overflow that we'll want to tell others about him. And so let's pray, loved ones. Let's pray for opportunities to point others to, to Christ. Let's pray for ways that we can engage sinners around us that God that God has, has already brought us together with, that God has brought across our path. I, I pray for us all today. Maybe some of you will be going to gatherings today where, you, where you'll be around people who, are, who don't know Jesus. And, and if they don't know Jesus, their lifestyles may, may be offensive to you in some ways, right? If, they, if, they're, if they're still dead in their sins, if they're not believers, we... We shouldn't expect them to be living righteous lives, right? And so we don't condone the sin, but may we have compassion and bring Jesus to them. Okay? Well, let's move on to the next section. And again, this is going to, it kind of continues this theme of, of the mission of Christ. And it's interesting because now it's a different group of people. But let me just go ahead and give you the heading and I'll explain what I mean as we go through it. But Point number two, and I only have two points today, so point number two is through Christ alone we know and worship God. Not only did Jesus come to call sinners to repentance, but then we we're reminded of, of this following text that through Christ alone we know and worship God. Look at verse 14. Then the, the disciples of John came to him saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but you, your disciples do not fast? It's interesting, if you've been going through Matthew 9, it's like this is the third group that's kind of had a problem with Jesus. You know, up in verse 3, it was the scribes. We saw that last week. Uh, you know, they're, they're upset. Why does he, uh, who is he to say that he can forgive sins? Right? He's blaspheming. And then we just had the, the Pharisees. They've got issues with Jesus, right? Why are you eating with tax collectors and sinners? And now we even have the disciples of John the Baptist coming and and, you know, maybe not quite as hostile, but they're at least questioning, Jesus, what's up? Why, why do you and your disciples not fast? I mean, fasting was a regular practice of Jewish society. Matter of fact, even in the Old Testament, it commanded the Jewish people to keep a fast one day out of the year on the Day of Atonement. That was a 24-hour fast as people thought of their sin and recognized anew their need to have their sin atoned for. And then later on, there were added other days, four other days of fasting. So fasting is a good thing, right? It's, it's ordained by God. It's a time to focus on God, declare your dependence on Him. Uh, for the Jews, it was a way by, uh, of expressing longing, longing for God to come and deliver them from their enemies, right? So fasting was an expression of mourning and repentance that was especially um, pointed to the, the hastening of, of the coming of redemption, So it's it's a good thing, 
We know the Pharisees, they took it even further and put, as they did with many things. They, they put in extra days of fasting and, and, and added more standards that they wanted everybody to keep that even beyond what God's word said. But the Pharisees fast, the John's disciples fast, those who followed the Pharisees fast, but, but people have noticed Jesus and his disciples are not fasting. They want to know why. So, verse 15, Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. So what picture has he given them? What, what, what picture is, is coming to their minds now? A wedding, right? That's what he's talking about, a bridegroom. And so he, he's saying, guys, picture a wedding. Do you see people fasting at a wedding? Do you see people mourning at a wedding? No, right? They're... They're celebrating, especially Jewish weddings, by the way, right? I mean, they were like a huge party, a a seven-day party, where, I mean, there's just all kinds of feasting and dancing and celebrating. And and Jesus is saying, "That's, that's what's happening now, guys. So fasting would not be appropriate because you need to understand what I'm doing. Jesus is describing the current situation. He's saying... He's describing the nature of the times is what we could say. And he's even alluding to himself being the Messiah, being God in the flesh for those who had ears to hear. Because throughout the Old Testament, there had been uh, this, this common picture of, of, of God being the bridegroom of his people. You read about that in the prophets and, and how, how God was going to come and rescue his people. And there was going to be this, this like, like a bridegroom coming for his bride. And of course, obviously, the New Testament carries that out even more explicitly, doesn't it? And so what Jesus is saying is, guys, the time has come. The Messiah, the promised King has come. I am the promised Messiah. And so this should be a time of great joy. A fast is not appropriate. You can't fast now. Fasting is for times of of yearning and longing and, and wanting God to come. Well, God has come, he's saying. The time has come after years and years of promises and and waiting and longing and hoping. The Messiah has come. And so Jesus is saying, my disciples can't fast. They're with me now. They're with the bridegroom. I'm among them. So this is a time for joy, not a time of mourning. He's not rejecting fasting. He says there's going to be a time and place for fasting again, which, by the way, we're in that time now, right? We're in the already, not yet. Jesus has come. He's brought the kingdom of God. But now we're waiting for his return. So there is that longing for him to come back. And so we can fully be redeemed from from sin, right? And so, yeah, there's going to be a time of fasting when the bridegroom is taken away. As we wait for his return, then we can fast. But Jesus, while he's there, while he's among them, bringing in the kingdom of God, he's saying this is no time to fast. And just to, and then he's, he's going to move into two illustrations, and I'll go through them quickly. But what he's showing them is the newness of what has happened. He wants them to understand how, how earth-shattering life-changing this is that he has come, okay? Verse 16, no one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment for the patch tears away from the garment and a worse tear is made. So they would have understood that, right? They, they worked with garments, no doubt. If you take a brand new piece of cloth, try to patch it onto an old garment, then the, as soon as it's washed, it, the, the, the piece that's brand new is gonna, what? It's gonna like shrink, right? And it's gonna stretch and, and tear the garment, So you can't do that. The point is that the mixture of new and old can't be done because it's going to damage 
everything. And so what he's saying, well, we'll go ahead and cover the second picture and then we'll talk about it all together. He's going to teach the same truth here now, but now using the image of wine. Verse 17, neither is new wine put into old wine skins. If it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wine skins and so both are preserved. This one might be a little harder for us to, picture, to understand, but I think we could picture it probably, right? Wine skins were the skins of animals. And so new wine is still in the process of fermenting, so it's producing gases and it's expanding. So if you had new wine, you had to put it in new, wine, new animal skins that, that had some flexibility to them, right? So they could expand as the wine expands. But, you know, old uh, animal skins get, get brittle and... and fixed in place, right? And so those were good for storing old wine that was done fermenting, done expanding. But you don't want to put new wine in there because once it starts expanding, it's going gonna, it's gonna to burst that old wine skin, right? So it's the same truth. He's saying you can't incorporate something new into something old. And what he was doing is he was pointing to the newness of his ministry, Jesus and his ministry are new. Yes, he's a Jew who's been raised under the law, and he, and he, but he's not just another rabbi who happens to be a good teacher, who happens to be a miracle worker. No, he is the king who has brought in the kingdom of God into their midst. And so what he's saying is, I can't just be integrated into the old practices of Judaism. You can't just keep on going as if nothing's happened because something brand new has happened. The kingdom of God is here. The kingdom that's been promised for hundreds of years, I've now brought in, he's saying. He, remember what, we, what that means. That means that God has come to reign and to rescue over, to reign over his people, to rescue them like never before. God is drawing people to himself. He's subduing hearts to Jesus, the king. He's saving people from their sins. And so this was something brand new. This is the kingdom of God. Jesus was bringing in the kingdom of God, and we know at his death and resurrection, he was going to establish a brand new covenant. So, I mean, he's, he's, he's every, there's going to be a whole new way of knowing God and worshiping God. It's going to be through Christ alone. No longer would God's people need to offer daily animal sacrifices for sin. No, Jesus would lay down his life as a once-for-all sacrifice for sin. His death would provide full atonement, perfectly satisfying God's wrath against all the sins of his people. No longer would God's people need the Levitical priest system, right? They wouldn't need those priests to mediate between them and God. Jesus had come as the ultimate and final priest. Just as David read for us earlier from Hebrews, Jesus offered himself as the perfect once-for-all sacrifice. He's the one and only mediator between God and man. He is the great high priest whose sacrifice atones for all who trust in him, for all who embrace him by faith. No longer would God's people need to gather in a physical temple in Jerusalem to worship God. Jesus would become the temple. He would become the place to meet with God. I mean, these are all things that are going to come up later, right? And these are all things that are going to create opposition. Remember, um, Jesus said in John 2.19, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up again. He's the temple. Remember what he said to the Samaritan woman? 
right, about worshiping God. There's coming a day when you won't be in Jerusalem and won't be here in Samaria that you have to go. You'll be able to worship God wherever <laughs> through me, he's saying. And that's the situation we're in now. People everywhere can meet with God, can worship God through Jesus Christ. So he's talking about the amazing blessings he was bringing, the amazing change he was bringing that we get to enjoy today now as members of the new covenant. Every day now, no matter where we are, we have immediate access to God through Jesus Christ. In fact, amazingly, God dwells in us by his spirit. So not only is Jesus the temple, but the Bible says we are the temple of God because God's spirit dwells in us. And of course, the Holy Spirit, that was a huge change that God was bringing. That It wasn't going to be like in the Old Testament where... Uh, well, the Spirit of God would come upon people once, once in a while to empower them for a certain task, and then that was it. No, now everybody who believes in Jesus is born again and given the Spirit of God. Now every single person will have God living in them. God will be with them 24-7. Right? If you're a believer, God is with you all the time, guiding you, teaching you, protecting you, assuring you, convicting you, drawing you into close communion with himself. So these changes were huge. And that's what Jesus is saying. I'm not just tweaking the old system here. I'm not just kind of, you know, reforming things. I mean, I'm doing a brand new thing, he's saying. And so let us, who are now get to be a part of that brand new thing, right? Let us praise God for what he's done through his son, Jesus Christ. Let us praise him for all the blessings that we enjoy now in the new covenant. And the the reason I said through Christ alone we know and worship God is I think this text reminds us that Christ is central. He's essential and he's central in our worship and in our Christian life. And you say, well, yeah, that should be obvious. And it should, but I think we can lose sight of that, right? Again, we can get in our routines and just get and be doing things. And we forget Christ is central. It's through him that we're forgiven. It's through him that we worship God. It's through him that we commune with God. And so let us always keep Christ central. We're not just going through the motions of a man-made religion. We are worshiping the living God through his son, Jesus Christ. So there's the two points. Jesus came to call sinners to repentance. And through Christ alone, we know and worship God. Jesus is central to our worship and our relationship with God. May we keep him central. And again, if you don't know Christ, may this be a reminder that Jesus, it's through Christ alone that you can know God. Uh, The the illustration of the the cloth and things, it's another reminder. We can't just tack Jesus onto our life, right? It it can't just say, oh yeah, you know, I'll I'll just kind of add Jesus on to the list of things that I believe or to the list. No, if if you are going to truly embrace Jesus, he must become central. He must become Lord. And he will completely transform you and change your way of, of thinking and living. All right, so may we as a church continue to keep him central. Let's, let's pray together. Father, we praise you for the, just your heart that we once again see coming through this text. And we praise you, Lord Jesus, as we think about you and and. and you know, we've seen your power on display already in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, healing people and, and casting out demons. And 
We've seen your compassion, and we see that once again here, just the love and compassion you have for sinners. And we praise you because we have experienced that love and compassion. And we confess that we need, we need your heart, Jesus, for sinners. That, that left to ourselves, we are prone to, to our hearts to get cold. We're prone to be judgmental. We get aggravated with the sin we see around us. We start having disdain for people rather than having your heart and seeing them as, as sheep without a shepherd. Oh God, please keep our hearts soft toward toward the lost around us, remembering how you came and rescued us by your grace, that it was nothing that we did that, that deserved it, but you just showed us mercy. And so may we continue to have that heart, and may you, may you give us opportunities, Lord. We commit once again to, to taking the gospel to the lost. Please open our eyes to see the, the people that you already have around us who need Jesus May we speak of him often. May he be central in our lives so that our our hearts and lives are just overflowing with love and praise for him. That it's just natural to talk about him to others. And we pray that you would be pleased to, to glorify your name by continuing to draw people to yourself, even through through our testimony, as we point them to the Savior. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together and we'll, we'll sing and rejoice in, the, in the, the kingdom of God that Christ has brought.